10 years from now, what's this going to be for me? Will I still be as upset as I am today? And if, and I don't know many things that 10 years down the road, you're going to be as upset as in the moment. And if you can get your head there, you can get through just about anything. Welcome to Trauma to Triumph, where our goal is to empower, inspire, and give you the means to stand up, take control of your life while embracing your inner badass. I am thrilled you are here and wanting to be a part of this journey. In our 18th episode, I am pumped to introduce to you my very good friend, former boss, and since longtime mentor, Steve Date. Steve is an everyday hero. There isn't enough time on this podcast to tell you how much this man means to me. If I'm calling Steve, it's for two things. One, weight cut for fighting, and two, any crazy ass life storm experience that needs some grounded feedback and perspective. Basically, when shit's going to hell in a handbasket, he's the guy I call when I need reframing. He is thoughtful, conscientious, and hands down one of the top five most influential people in my life. In this episode, we are going to talk about a few different things, how to reframe your thought process to handle any situation, including losing someone to suicide, raising kids, and how coaching little athletes changed the way he manages adults. Let's get started. So I am really excited to have you on today. We have Steve Date, who is probably one of my like all-time favorite people. So Steve... No pressure. No pressure. No pressure at all. What is something crazy about you that nobody really knows? And I know you're a pretty open book, but give me something. Yeah, there, there's not a lot. <laughs> I do a lot of dumb things, uh, I think, is, is one of the bigger ones, right? Like if I, I'm still a kid, so if people dare me to do something, I will do it. And that's gotten me in a lot of physical pain in my life. And... I'll give you like one of the bigger ones. So I was driving down the road and I saw that, and I'm an animal lover, right? And it's so funny because when I was a kid, I didn't care about any of that stuff, but uh, I really just have a thing just for all animals. And so I saw this hawk get hit by a car (laughs) and I thought those were really cool. So I drove around the street to go see if it's okay. And I got there and I had a broken wing, right? So it was in shock, laying on the side of the road, broken wing. So I got a towel and I kind of wrapped it and picked it up. And this was a big hawk. So I'm driving down the street with this thing sitting in my lap. And I'm calling bird sanctuaries trying to save this thing. And I uh, finally got one on the phone, told them what happened. And they said, yeah, we'll send somebody to pick it up, right? So I was excited. I was going to save this hawk. And I didn't know that it was still in shock. Because uh, I hadn't had many hawks in my car or lap before. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. So I get to my house. They said, put it in a box. And I'm looking for a box to put it in, right? And as I'm walking around my garage trying to figure out how I'm going to pull this off, I look down and this hawk clearly woke up. Like it was out of shock. It was, it was definitely wondering who I was, how this whole thing came to be. And about three seconds later, it's talons, its claws went right through my hand on every side, right? Because it freaked out. And so now I've got this hawk literally through my hand on two or three puncture wounds and then in the bone in another. And and I'm trying not to hurt the thing, but I'm in a little bit of pain at this point. So I get a screwdriver to take it out of my hand. So I had to pry its claws out of my hand. Blood is everywhere, right? And uh, it just at that time, my wife walks through the garage door (laughs) and she's looking at me because she didn't know any of this was going on in the garage. Right. And she calmly just looks at me and goes, you know what, serves you right. And shuts the door and walks back in and out. (laughs) And uh, it took me a few minutes to get this thing under control. And then I finally got in the box and then this guy comes to pick it up. and, And I guess everything went well with it. But like to me, it was awesome. Right. I didn't care. I just didn't want this thing to get hurt. Um. Apparently, I'm, I'm extremely excited it did not wake up in my crotch because that would have been a rough um, while oh driving God. down the street. But, right. uh, you know, I'll do anything to, to help, you know, help one of those guys out. And um, I've been like that for years. I love the ocean. I'll, I'll free dive and, and, you know, snorkel or, free, or uh, scuba anytime I can get my hands on it. But uh, those are some of my big passions in life, for sure. Oh, I remember hearing this story. Was it when you were in Seattle when this happened? No, this was in Orange County, California. Okay. 
that's so weird. I totally thought it was when you were in Seattle, but okay. Um, I remember hearing that story and I remember dying laughing when you told me about it because I was like, who rescues a hawk and lets them attack them and then is totally calm and sane about it? Well, it wasn't the plan, but uh, it definitely was definitely ended up that way, right? So, <laughs> could have been worse. Right. I have many of those. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today on this podcast. Um, I am so excited to have you here for so many different reasons. One, because I think that if it wasn't for you, I probably would have gone insane in the corporate world. I think it's pretty fair to say that you had really given me all of the skill sets that I need to understand how to play the corporate world. Um, And I think that I would have been floundering had it not been for all of the mentoring sessions and how to handle difficult conversations and role-playing these difficult conversations. Like You are the epitome of the reasons why I can have the conversations and do the things that I do. Cool. We worked together on, uh, like it was weird, right? We worked together in Seattle and then Orange County. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was really cool, or not Orange County, but in Inland Empire down there in, in uh, San Diego area. Yeah. And uh, we've, I think you though gravitated towards trying to be better, where a lot of people wanted to be better at their job. You really emphasized wanting to be better as a person, which then forced those conversations, right? It had, it brought those up because you didn't just leave it at, I, you know, how do I do my job or how do I make more money? <clears throat> you really, always prompted the better questions, the better understandings. Um, You were always looking for the why behind the what. A lot of people don't have that in their brain. So I think the reason you feel that way, though, is a lot to do with how you're wired because you caused that to happen yourself. So I appreciate that. But I think you were you were the one that made that happen. Oh, thank you. So you have quite the fascinating life. You have um, you've lived everywhere from Seattle to Colorado to, is there other places that I'm missing? I know that you've been in California. So I grew up in Philadelphia and then went to San Diego for a lot of years and then, um, different places in Southern California due to work. And then Texas for a year, Seattle for four years, back to Orange County and then to Colorado and now Sacramento. It's, uh, um, and all with the health club or the, the fitness business, um, each, each one of these moves was, was prompted by something within that realm. So how did you end up getting started in the fitness industry? I just, it's interesting. I just got started, right? Um, I, I was back in 1982 in San Diego. My brother, Mike was a big fitness nut. Um, and, uh, the, when I moved to California, I was straight out of high school and literally the first thing he did when I got out to San Diego is he, you know, how much money do you have in your pocket? And I had, I think 500 bucks and he <laughs> took me down to the gym and said, here, you're joining. Cause if you're going to live with me, this is what we do. Right. And so, um, and I had been working out prior to that, but not, you know, not at that level, not at a nice place. It was always at the house. I had, you know, always had kids, uh, from high school over lifting weights at my house after school every day. And we'd, you know, go think we were all that great stuff there going on. But, um, so I've always been into it, I think through my older brothers. And then, uh, like I said, Mike, first thing I did, I mean, I, it was a crack up. Um, it, it, I didn't hit the ground an hour and I was signing up at the gym that he went to. And then from there, that gym offered me a job as a trainer, uh, about six months later, and then in sales. And then since then, I've had VP jobs and district manager jobs and, and general manager jobs, head of trainers. And then I ran a supplement company within 24-Hour Fitness for a while called Apex. And then uh, Hoist Fitness Systems. I had a year with them as a sales and marketing manager uh, before they really made their splash in the commercial business. That was kind of what I was brought on to do. So that worked out really well for everybody. And <laughs> I, just, it's, I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. I love what I do. I do it on my days off, which is funny. And so it's, uh, um, it just, it's never been work for me to go and try to get people to make their lives better through fitness. And so it's just, it's always been a passion and, and therefore, I don't know, I, I think I'll pretty much at the end of, of the career path, right. It's all, I think I'll end my career and retire having done fitness my entire life. That's great. 
fun. So crazy things for me when I'm watching you, like I know that you've gone through some pretty insane things from um, when you were in Seattle. I believe that your brother had committed suicide. Yeah. Right. My brother, Eddie, uh, he was uh, the next oldest to me. So we were a couple of years apart. And um, that was <laughs> I was literally coaching a football team. And during halftime, I got a call from my dad and, you know, I could tell something was up and he told me what had happened. And uh, so we had to I had to finish that second half of the game for the kids and uh, not freak them out. And then I flew out, you know, that evening back to Philadelphia to help out my parents who were going through all that. You went through that and then you ended up coming back. And what's really amazing for me, like listening and watching, and I've actually come to you for advice with siblings who are experiencing issues with that. Um, How were you able to maintain being so grounded through all of that? Like, how were you able to process, like the way you process things is just mind blowing for me because you're always so calm. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen you freak out. So when you dealt with your brother, and I know that you even at a point had to help clean up the house because it was a little bit insane, like they didn't get everything and you're in there doing some stuff. Like, how did you do all of that and just maintain your calm? I think there, there's, you know, processes called compartmentalizing, right? Where you try to take things and have enough control over your brain to separate your emotional state with your conscious state with what's going on. And then what you, what you need to do as a task. Right. And so when I went back there, you know, I, I knew that from my parents weren't going to be able to handle it. My siblings were having a bigger challenge, I think in that, in that field than I was. And so really there was no one else to do it. Therefore you take that task on and you find a way to get it done. And so I think somebody taught me back when I was in my twenties, to mentally say, how will you feel about this 10 years from now? How will you talk about this 10 years from now? And I remember because uh, he blew his head off with a shotgun and it was down in the basement of my parents' house. So I, they said, okay, this, this cleaning crew, you know, they come in, they charge you a fortune and then they say, okay, go down and inspect our work. Right. Well, <laughs> none of, I have eight, like, well, I have seven siblings, right? No, everybody's like, I ain't going down there. <laughs> so I'm like, I got it. So I went down. And their work, it wasn't done. And so I'm sitting there looking at it and I didn't want my parents to have to deal with anything. And I could just see, like, I kind of got this mental picture of how it all went down, right? He sat in a chair, kind of the center of the room and, uh, you know, put this gun up to his, under his head and somehow pulled the trigger and things went everywhere. And I started to look at the splatter marks in the ceiling and say, okay, what, what, I asked the people, what went over, the, what did you clean up over there? And they're like, well, there's nothing over there. I'm like, well, sure there is. Look at, look at the marks in the ceiling. So sure enough, I went over to this corner or this other area and I found, you know, a big piece of him. Right. And I'm like, all right, guys, I do not want my parents to deal with this. You need to, you need to start to figure this out. So then I had to spend an hour down there with these people showing them sadly enough how to do their job. Right. Because it's like, I just started to follow marks in the ceiling and different things. And, you know, we probably found, I would just have to say eight or nine, um, things that I, I would not want to have had my parents to find in their late seventies. And, um, you know, finally got it all done and had to go, but I kept telling myself, how will I, and I did, I, I literally talked to myself on, how will I explain this 20 years from now? Right. And I would almost be role-playing the story, but in the future tense, so far in the future that my emotional state was beyond what I was seeing at that moment. And it wow. really helped me get through it. And, and I really was able to be like, um, you know, again, calm throughout the whole thing. And then with him, he was going through some challenges, uh, very like, a, a forms of schizophrenia at, at his age to where, I remember driving around in Seattle, talking to my brother on the phone and, and we were like, Hey, what are you going to, how do you think we're going to handle this when our parents die? Cause they, they were getting older. And I told him, that brothers, it was Phil. I'm like, we're not going to have to Eddie, you know, he'll take himself out before he gets to that point. And my brother was like, what are you talking about, man? He, no way. Anybody would do that. I go, no, he will. I, I feel like I know him enough. And, and with schizophrenia, you get to a point, a tipping point where you lose control of your brain and, um, you just got, you just, you know, all of a sudden you're done, right? You have no more control. And I knew that Ed was 
of a strong state to where before that happened, he was not going to live his life that way. And he never directly said it, but I could feel it when I talked to him. And he was a good guy. And therefore, I know that he would never want to uh, jeopardize or be a burden to others. And he just, I, I, that's why I wasn't shocked when it happened. I'm like, well, I called that one, right? And so um, I just, so the combination of understanding why he would do it, and it wasn't out of this, this total uh, desperation or, or, you know, fear or just misery of his life. It was his last thing that he could do where he was in control of his brain. And I, I just think he did not want to live the other way. And he made a choice. And where sometimes, you know, we talk about suicide, right? It is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, his was a permanent problem. And I think he really just made a decision. And as sad as it is for us and, you know, the, the, just the horror of what happened and how it happened, I was really in a, in a place where he did what he really wanted to do. And, um, you know, I wish he did it differently and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, he did what he needed to do for himself. And, you know, unless someone's there to cure or fix it, um, I certainly uh, would not want him to live his life the way that he saw himself living his life. Those combinations of things allowed me to stay calm and pragmatic to what was going on. And I was sad and, and I miss my brother and I loved him. And we, we had a quite a crazy childhood. Um, you could spend a, three shows on, on the crazy things that we did <laughs> in our family. But at the end of the day, as mature adults, um, that guy did what he absolutely needed to do in his mind. And, um, you know, when you look at schizophrenia and you, you, you listen to some of the stories, right. I think when I lived in San Diego, the guy that went into McDonald's, um, and, and killed 21 people or whatever the number was, um, he heard voices, right. He heard voices telling him to do it. He was going hunting and Eddie was suffering from the same thing, right. He heard voices, people were talking to him and, and he did not want to, end up like that. And he did not want to hurt other people. And therefore, before he lost total control, he took control. And uh, all that together allowed me just to, to deal with the situation and make sure my parents didn't have to deal with the situation. And, um, and I use that in any time I'm in a stressful situation, I use the how will I talk about this 20 years from now theory? How will I talk about this 10 years from now? And once I can get my head 10 years into the future, everything's fine always. Wow. That's great advice. I never even thought about thinking that way to be able to process your emotions. And I felt like I thought about everything. No, you got to do it quick too, because you're in it at the moment and you just got to be like, okay, you know, 10 years from now, what's this going to be for me? How will I, will I still be as upset as I am today? And if, and I don't know many things that 10 years down the road, you're going to be as upset as in the moment. And if you can get your head there, you can get through just about anything. Yeah. Did you do any follow-up to process your emotions afterwards? Did you feel like you needed at any point to do therapy or any of that? Or did you feel like you had a really good grip on it where every single time you wanted to revisit this feeling or emotions or whatever else that you were able to process it in the same way that you're talking about with just looking at 10 years I, down the road? I was able to process it the same way and, you know, more so talking to my family because, again, I had two sisters and four older brothers more so talking to them and helping them through, you know, whether this was a tragedy that we should have had a grip on or taken care of, or whether this was a tragedy that was inevitable, uh, whether it was, a, whether it was a tragedy, you know, to, to anyone, um, it was, was really that where my head was, right. You're in management a while and you're a fixer, so as I think helping them through their emotional state and the discussions that needed to be had, I was basically having my own discussions, trying to heal and help them and therefore healed myself, I think, in the same time um, as I went through it. And I, here we are years later, you still, you know, you still remember funny things or you see a picture. Um, and, and I don't think you ever get over a loss, but I don't have a tragedy loss. I just have a loss. Got it. Well, thank you for that. When you take a look at just going in and helping your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad, 
was that, I know for me, when I had reached out to you earlier this year and I was talking to you about one of my siblings and I was like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to handle this. I don't even know what I would say to my dad if any of this stuff had happened. Like what were, like, I'm assuming that you were the glue to everything that was going on and that you were probably the one who had the most calm sense about you in order to be able to take care of the family and come back in and do all this stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I was the calm as siblings. No one really ever freaks out publicly in our family. Right. Yeah. We never saw that from our parents. They they hid any of that from us, which I don't think is a good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, so they they were calm. But inside they were churning and, and really trying to figure things out. So I don't know if I was any version of glue, but I definitely was a good sounding board. Right. And I think when when we as people deal with this and this is a rough topic for anybody right this is a this is a real rough one because no i don't think anyone is alike they're they're all different for different reasons in different you know states um and i've had sadly enough way too many acquaintances and and friends and close friends now go through this and every single one of them's for for a different reason some are like i said some of them are so caught up in in a moment that they do something dumb and they can't take it back. Some of them, you know, so sadly drug and alcohol related, so many of them, um, and they can't take it back. And, and, you know, this one was unique in the respect that I think it had a little bit more of a long-term, um, mental process, right. A long-term planning to it. And it wasn't, uh, there, but, you know, I remember talking to you about your sister and, and going through that. And one of the big challenges is, you know, you can get people through a temporary situation, you can get them through a feeling. Um, but, but, you know, there are just some that you're just not going to fix and, and there's some you can't. And so I think as you, as you deal with this topic in general, all you can do is all you can do. And, and when you've done everything you think you can do without hurting yourself and, and damaging yourself so much in the process that there's just a point where you've got to let go of the guilt and the angst of, you know, what could you have done or where should you have been and all this sort of stuff. Because, you know, when someone wants to uh, take themselves out, they are going to do it. Right. right. And, and it's just there's just a point where you could destroy your life in the process and they'll still do it. And there's just there's just a point where you just got to realize that, um if, if that's where their head's at. And, and again, we all think that everybody's crazy when they want to do this. And sometimes they're not. Um, but you, you just have to let go of that and make sure you can forgive yourself and make sure that you don't carry some, some weird guilt about where someone else has chosen to be. Yeah, for sure. So going into coaching and talking about how you've mentored so many, you've mentored, I'm assuming you probably mentor way more than I can even count on my hands in terms of people that you have worked with through fitness or coaching through high school. You've coached high school wrestling? High school wrestling, uh, peewee wrestling, um, uh, peewee, not peewee, but a little bit older before high school football, um, and I've just, I've just always had a blast with all that. And then adults in their, in their thing, in their, in their careers. Right. And I think as the years go on, you, you develop, some people get better, some people get worse. Um, I definitely <laughs> think as the years have gone on through study and observation, um, I think I've gotten better okay. and, um, as opposed to the same, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. You could have, we, we talk about this a lot in the, in the, business world, right? Where years doing something does not always equate to experience, right? And you you can do something for 15 years, but if you're the same as you were 15 years ago, you have one year's experience over 15 years, right? <laughs> so true. You Or you grow each year, right? And then that's when you have 15 years experience. And so I've always tried to grow each year. Um, and I think through work, and learning a lot from the people that I learned from, right? Um, I've really developed a feedback process where I've really always searched for feedback, right? And I, and again, not when I was younger. I don't, you know, I was not a good manager, you know, in the in the eighties, um, and maybe some people would argue in the nineties, right? Um, but uh, you, you get feedback from people, and you got to decide how you want to adjust and how you want to grow, and you know, probably in my thirties, 
I really started to appreciate and respect honest feedback. And I started to really make it a safe environment for people to tell me what they thought. And it's funny, I learned it from the patients that I had when I was coaching kids, right? You're coaching 11, 12, and 13 year olds. You're obviously not going to hold them to the standard that you would hold a person at work that's 30 years old, making hundred grand a year or two. And so it's interesting, but they're the same people. They just are older, right? We're all just children in older bodies, but we still have the emotional state that we grew up with. And so in dealing with the kids, I always was concerned about how they felt. Are they okay? Are they enjoying themselves? This isn't a job. You don't have to be miserable. I'm shocked you're even here, you know, putting yourself through all this stuff. And so we always wanted to make it a safe, fun environment. And as I did that with these adolescents, I started to realize I need to do this with adults, right? Because they're going through even more stuff at home. They've got the stresses of their house, their family, their life. So why do I, you know, why wouldn't I employ these things there? So it was interesting. Coaching children became one of my best management lessons that I ever had, right? And then when you couple that with the desire to be a good person and do well, it really worked out. So feedback and and safe environment and making and realizing that, you know, it's all just a game, right? Work's a game and you have to win and life's a game. And then the game's surely a game. And when you start to look at everything like that and you start to go, how can I win? And I don't want to make it a miserable thing. And you can always win without making it a miserable thing. If you understand the people that you're playing with and what you're trying to accomplish and they are the right people and doing the right things, um, you can really always be a good leader, good manager, good mentor, never hurt people because they know your intentions are good while getting the job done. And it takes, took me a, you know, a while to get to that point, but I do think coaching kids got me there. That's interesting because when we talk about the fitness industry, the fitness industry, and especially from a woman's standpoint, is probably one of the most volatile, hostile work environments. Um, at least when I was working in there back in the day, um, because, and not only that, but when you think about it too, right, the fitness industry is so physically, like, I mean, it's all about, you know, your physicality, right? So physicality, making money and whatever else. But back in the day before you had even come to Seattle, and I believe that you came to Seattle, I think the only reason why you ended up in Seattle is because Eric Jenkins had passed away, right? Correct. Right. So before you had gotten to Seattle, like my world was upside down. I'll never forget sitting in a room with my general manager and my district manager and them both telling me that if I was trying to report something that it would never um, go anywhere because they would back each other up. And then all of a sudden there's this guy who comes in who's got like great morals, values, shows me how to play the game. I'm like, oh, this is totally night and day from what I was experiencing before you had gotten into the market. Right. I vividly remember what I walked into. That was, that was, that was a rough scene. Uh, Freaking nightmare. Well, it was interesting. Right? And each place has been, each place I got transferred to over the years was never, hey, this, there's a smooth running situation. Do you want to go? It was always, guess what just happened? We need you to go deal with this, right? And so every place I went to, whether it was Texas, uh, you know, one of my friends and, and still one of my friends got let go and just a bunch of drama down there. And uh, I had to go in to deal with that. And then Seattle was very unique in um, it also had the complexity of uh, um, Hearts Athletic Club, which then had all their employees quit the month or two earlier when yeah. 24 took them over. So it was just a completely disrupted scenario. And then, like you said, you walk into a place that's usually rough on women and, um, you know, what what you had to go through. And not just you, when I say you, I'm just talking about people that I've worked with. And my goal was to create this safe environment wherever I was, because even when I was you know, young in the business, I remember my first boss telling me that I would never make it because I was too nice, right? She's heard, it was a woman, actually. Her name was Muriel. And she's like, you're just, Steve, you're just not going to make it. You're just too nice. It's never going to happen. And I was like, <laughs> wow, right? That's not cool at all. And in many ways, she was right. I had to, I had to mature and get a little thicker skin and do certain, you know, uh, protection things. I was too far to the other side. And then I found my, my middle side. And what's interesting is I found my middle side because I swung too far to the aggressive side to make up for that, to have this person not tell me that anymore. And then I kind of balanced in the middle 
before I got to Seattle. But, and I think any industry that's a performance driven industry where you're dealing with egos and, and when you talk about high performance salespeople and the mentality it takes for many of them to do that. Um, and then they're also trying to please their bosses, right? And that's the era of the, the movie Boiler Room and, you know, second place gets steak knives and all this drama that people bought into to show that they were tough enough and hardworking enough to, to satisfy their bosses. Um, and I really felt that you could do all that without any of that. Right. And, and, you know, coffee's not for closers and all this trauma. And it was just such stupid things to me that for me, sales and business was about a process. It's about metrics. It's about linear thinking. And, if you did all those things right, you can and should be successful and actually more successful because it was less emotionally driven. And there's got to be emotion and excitement, but it's got to be backed up with process and technique. And so, um, so it was really important for me wherever I went to instill and teach people work-life balance so that they didn't die for some company uh, <laughs> that, you know, at the end of the day would fire them tomorrow if anything went wrong. And, right. uh, and then find that balance so they could have a normal life and have a good career because I found my groove with that and, and, you know, through hard work and through process. And I wanted to teach everybody and still do that, that you can be a high performance person, but do not, not have appropriate work-life balance for the other people in your life because, you know, they, they could be gone tomorrow. And I really believe that. And, and especially when you have kids. And so it was important for me to instill all those things at one time. And when I went into Seattle, it was definitely a, uh, a show of, you know, working hard and, and putting in the hours and the more hours, the more committed you were, as opposed to what did you do in those hours and were you effective in those hours? And so it was really about trying to teach people how to be better at what they did versus put more time into it. Uh, and again, going back to the one year's experience versus 15 years experience. And these people, a lot of people live that. And so my goal was to make people better every day a little bit versus big chunks, which don't really stick versus no chunks, which is somebody that's disengaged. And so Seattle was a really good proving ground for the fact that you could be good, do good, and still have a life and be successful at the same time. And um, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed my years up there. And, you know, I still talk to uh, quite a few of the people that we worked with up there. Um, I talked to, you know, you know, Chip, one of your DMs, um, talked to him about probably a week ago, right? Two weeks ago. And we talked from time to time, but there's, there's some good friends I have in Seattle, you being one of them. And, um, but it's all from trying to just not hurt people, right? Trying to just be good and teach people to be good while being successful in business. And again, it's all doable once you understand the math and the metrics and, and the processes that you can do versus just emotionally telling people, you know, to, to, do more. Right. And, uh, I think the sales game is so challenging where, you know, so much of it's like, you know, and I call it wrestle harder, right. I got to watch a wrestling coach at a college level and I was sitting with one coach who was coaching his kids. And then I watched this other coach coaching his kids and the coach I was with was a world champion wrestler. His name's Sammy Henson. And he's a world champion wrestler, good coach. And he is, coaching his kid on the mat, right? So he's telling his kid, grab the leg, you know, sit back, put your head up. And he's actually walking the kid through process and telling him what to do. And this other coach from another college, he was, you know, on the other side. And all he would say the entire match was wrestle harder, right? Wrestle harder, wrestle harder. And he's screaming it. And, I, and me being this, this person that observes, right? I'm watching a manager, meaning the coach, walk his kid through the process, through the match and give him things to do. And then I'm watching this other coach just put pressure on his wrestler. So I'll say employee to do more without any description of what more is. And I actually watched it freeze the kid up. And the coach that was telling his kid what to do through the process was his kid one and the other kid that was simply being told to do more and do harder lost. And I see that same thing come out and work every day all around the world. And it drives me nuts where managers think because they told someone to do more, 
and maybe threaten them that they needed to do more, that they solved their problem and they did nothing but create stress and hurt someone's life. And when you give people the, the steps and the processes to do and give them the tools to do, their stress levels go down, they become more effective and they learn and grow from that. And again, going back to just watching this, this one sporting event had that significant impact in my management life for the rest of my life. And it's, and I will never let that one go because I see it playing out over and over again, not only in sports, but in the business world. Right. It's, it's always interesting because I remember when you were here and your son, I believe he's actually, he's officially pro now, right? As a officially pro pro MMA fighter out in Colorado. Um, I remember having you talk about how when you were at a wrestling match and you could predict exactly what he was going to do because of how he practiced and practiced. You're like, watch this. This is going to be what happens. And you were literally talking to the guy and talking through exactly what Sean was going to do in his match because it was what he does time and time again in practice. Right. That comes down to the, 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 again, how you practice is how you'll play. Right. And, um, good practice makes you better practice does not make you better, right? Bad practice makes you worse. Right. And, and so what you do and that, whether it's business life, um, uh, you know, or any sport, how you practice is how you will play. And, and so, and what you talk to yourself about, right. Programming your own self-conscious or subconscious, I should say, and how you program yourself. Like your brain is this biological computer that you can program. And once it's programmed, it'll do exactly if it, if it's reacting and that's what high intensity sports are, you don't have time to think you react. So how you program that brain and that body is what's going to happen. And uh, that particular one, um, he was wrestling one of the kids, you know, the way the tournament went, he was wrestling one of the kids that he wrestles in practice. And what happens is he was in practice, not wanting to be so intense with the people that he trained with. Right. He didn't he wasn't mature enough to to grasp this yet. Mm -hmm. So me and that dad were sitting there. And we're buddies and we're all friends. And then I go, oh, and uh, I remember Tim, he walked over and he goes, oh, God, Steve, how do you think this one's going to go? And I go, well, this is exactly how it's going to go. <laughs> and, and he kind of looked at me like, why do you say that? And, I, and here I am a parent saying, you know, Sean's going to lose. Here's why. And here's how. Watch what happens. And it, it played out because I watched these two wrestle night in and night out. Now, regardless of who's better, who's not, and all this stuff, that didn't matter because the programming – that they did at practice was Sean did not want to, for some reason, you know, go all out. This kid maybe did or didn't, but over the time it ended the same way, let's say 70% of the time in practice. And a lot of times people think that, well, in the real game, I'll do better, right? It's almost like in business world and people, I don't like to role play. And it's like role play is called practice. So mm -hmm. imagine, you know, Joe Montana going, Hey, I don't like to practice guys. I'll meet you on Sundays you know, we'll just go out there and we'll see how it goes, but I'm not really good at practice. And that's not what champions do, whether it's a sport or business or anything. And so there's times where you have to practice so that you're not over and, and thinking when you should be reacting and acting. And so it's, to me, the, the whole subconscious and conscious programming of the human brain is, is everything uh, from a young age. And we're all just either victims or, or getting the benefit of our programming that we've given ourselves. And at the end of the day, there's, it's never too late to reprogram. You can always program positive things or you can program negative things. So um, I am so excited when I get around people and I get a chance to know that I am going to take whatever they have and make it positive and effective and, and forward thinking for that human being because I know it will impact the rest of their life. And so whether it's a young person or, or, you know, going up to Seattle, like we did, you know, I told people just this week, I said, you know, I don't like business meetings, right? Because <laughs> meetings are just, just captain obvious, right? Let's just go talk about what we already know. And we're going to act like we did something. And so I love trainings. And so in that my business meetings last about five minutes out of an hour and a half. And the rest of the time is practice drills, new technique, old technique, and whatever we do for a living, just making us better at it so that you can leave better than when you walked in. And meetings don't do that. Trainings do. 
And so I've, I've not had a business meeting for probably 20 years, but we do trainings once a week at all levels. And uh, same thing with sports. I used to love your trainings. Your trainings were the best. It's interesting because um, people I, I, people do hate role-playing. And it wasn't until I started working with you that I really had an appreciation for role-playing. And it's interesting because even with my clients, whether I'm teaching them how to talk to their vendors or whatever else, like I will make them role-place until they're face turns blue. They hate it. But at the same time, it's like, if you don't practice it, do you know what you're going to say and how you're going to say it? And how is it going to resonate? Like, how's that message going to come across? And it's such a big deal to be able to do that and do it effectively. And so I would say that if there was one skill set that I really walked away with, it's the ability to role play and role play comfortably. Well, good. See, at least I did something. (laughs) (laughs) You did a lot of things, but you know, well, to to the point that you were talking about with reprogramming, and I love this because you have you know two kids, and then now you have a brand new granddaughter, right? Granddaughter today is her birthday, actually. Oh, is she one now? She is two. Two. Oh my God, has it already been two years? It's already been two years. Oh my goodness, she's such a ham. Um, so when you talk about programming your kids and like, you know, between coaching your son for wrestling and with your daughter and how she, she was a dancer, right? A ballet. Yeah. So how did you program your kids to be able to think the same way? I mean, Sean's done extremely well for himself in fighting. Even if he just started his pro career, he's always been a really incredible fighter. And that goes to his mentality and what you've been able to teach him at a really young age and also the practice and the work that goes into it. So between both your kids, what did you do as a parent to be able to give them those skill sets? Oh, man. Um, I think one of the ones, one of the things is time, right? So when you're dealing with, with young people, they they their life has a tendency to especially at young ages right revolve around you and you know the trick was i i always was with them right i always did it with them and so um and the hard part was you know megan's off at dance at the same time sean's off at wrestling and so i couldn't be in two places with at once and i really was not much help at dance. And so the sad thing is when they were younger, I spent more time with the wrestling and Chris took care of the dance stuff. Right. And, but it was still the same thing. And I think the the biggest thing I can tell you is that, um, and even though I probably, you know, was guilty of it a little bit or, or more is that just not making it the end of the world. Right. Um, and, and not making it to where there's a fear of winning or losing, um, based on how the parent is going to be, uh, it's, it's, it's gotta be a safe environment when they're young. And, and again, it's all about process, not winning or losing, right? When, when Sean would wrestle, we would watch the video. I never got emotional. Um, and again, you talk about staying calm. Some of it's an act, right? You act calm, even though you're not where I never wanted him to worry about, what I thought of him in that moment. Right. And I, I watched so many kids, you know, especially in such a one-on-one sport, you know, they look over to see if their parents are happy with them or not. Right. Mm. And, and I would just watch these poor kids go out, risk everything, you know, not only did they lose and, and that's a sport where when you lose, it's not like there's a scoreboard that tells you most times that you lose. There's somebody crushing you to the ground and you're on your back and you can't get up and can't <laughs> breathe. Right. And so, and then, so you lose and then you look over at your parents and, and I watched this one, one time, this poor kid, he was so distraught of his dad's disgust that he lost. Right. And, and it, he, he was, uh, where were we? We were in Seattle when this happened, I think. And it was, um, they grew up at Cedro Woolley or one of those schools. And I watched this young kid and, you know, we, we talked to them ahead of time. Cause you're in this uh, staging area where, you know, both parents are, or parents usually with the kid, kid goes out, Sean's about 12 years old. And this kid, you know, he had no, he had, he thought he was very, very good. And he was, he probably was, but he didn't realize, you know, the years and, and the training and all this stuff. So he gets, Sean just tore him up, but I watched him start to cry in the middle of the match. Right. And he's oh. upset. And, and he's upset because his dad is disgusted with him, right? So, and his dad's like, he had no idea. Uh, I think Sean was prior year state champ up in Seattle. And this kid, you know, again, 
he, he probably, I don't know, he probably had some success, but his dad's like, oh yeah, my son's so great, all this stuff. And Sean and I are just looking at each other like, okay, that's cool, man. We're just, you know, we're just here for this. Right. <laughs> and, uh, when he started to lose his dad's throwing his hat down and stomping and this kid's looking over at his dad he should have been staring at his opponent and instead he's worried about his dad then he's getting upset and then he just he fell apart and when he lost his dad literally stomps off and and had to leave the building he was so disgusted right and this kid's 12 years old and you know i made sure that anytime you know sean lost i would just sit there and give him a big hug and smile and go hey man that kid was tough right and uh we'll watch film and see if there's anything you can improve on and some of it is just as you get older, you'll get better. It's no big deal, but that's good to see out there. And it's that mentality of the process versus the outcome that I think helps with the kids because, you know, as long as they're in the process and as long as they're, you know, trying to get better, your, your job as a parent or as a coach is to support them. And, you know, if they don't win, they don't win. It's never, you know, here you are, thinking it's life and death and they're 12 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And, or whatever. And we treat them like it's their job. Like, Oh my God, I just lost my career because you lost. And these parents get so wrapped up in the winning and losing of kids. And I think when you talk about programming your kids, the one thing I, I hope I programmed them in is nothing matters that much, right? Just nothing matters that much. And especially when you volunteer to do a sport and even with Sean, it's like, you want to fight? Great. You're a fighter. Um, but you're someday not going to be a fighter and you better be prepared for that. And you got to realize you're going to have a family and your kids are going to need you. And all the things that are really important about who you are, because so we get so caught up in what we do versus who we are. And so I always made sure that if we were ever in a discussion about what we do, I always tempered it with who we are so that they never lost sight of why they did what they did. And I started that at age eight right? Or whatever. And so it was never always only about the moment. It was about the moment and how that'll impact you when you're 40 and what it really means. Again, that projection of the future so that we didn't put so much emphasis on the moment that that moment could actually cause more stress than we can emotionally handle and make what should be a moment of process all of a sudden at, at a young age, life or death for a kid emotionally. And I certainly would never judge my kid on his or her ability to do something when I'm sitting on my butt doing nothing. Right. So here I'm the one, I'm not the one out there ever. And I think so many parents act like it's them and how, how it makes them look or feel because of their kids doing stuff. And I've seen it from baseball to football to wrestling. It's just disgusting. And uh, I just made sure I never treated my kids that way. And as a coach, I really made sure I'd, I'd have conversations with, uh, you know, different parents about making sure that they understood where they were at in life and, and that it wasn't important and what they were causing. And I've had some really good discussions with parents along the way of, you know, not telling a parent not to be involved, but just saying, hey, do you realize what you're doing right now? And I think I've been able to calm a lot of uh, uh, obsessive parents over the years <laughs> um, to not torture their children in public or private over something so stupid as a t-ball game, right? Um, right. It's just, it just not having it. God, I just think about how many parents are so lucky to have you as a coach for their kids and just be able to talk some of these parents off the ledge in terms of like how intense and how serious they are when their kids are competing. Um. <laughs> and again, I'm intense in a different way. I want to win always, but I want to do it through process, not through intimidation or intensity. It's just got to be, you know, it's got to be the process and, and you'll win when you're ready to win but you're not going to win because I will you to win. You're going to win because you're good and you don't get good in the game. You get good in practice. And that's where we work on perfect practice makes perfect. And again, bad practice makes bad. And so in that, again, I, I carry that to work. I carry that to my career. It's all about how you live every minute. And, and so many people want to be good in, in whatever game they talk about, whether it's work or there, but they're not willing to practice. And once you teach people that and they start to realize practice is more important than the game itself, whatever that game is. And again, I, I reflect on that for work. Um, it's amazing how much they can grow as people. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I remember, I mean, it was just like a couple of days ago when I was in um, training and 
one of the instructors were like, the way that you're practicing now, he was like, don't practice bad, you know, footwork, don't practice bad, you know, holding pads or whatever else. And if you're not coming back right away when you're disengaging and just keeping your hands up, you're going to do that in a real fight because what you do here is how you're going to be when you show up in the ring. And so I completely agree with you 100% on that. Cool. Um, so going into, you know, the transitions of like, I know it's Megan, right? Yes. So she doesn't dance anymore? No. And, you know, with Sean, he's going through the stage where he's, um, just recently signed with Sparta Combat Leagues and he's going through that process. When you go through, I mean, you've seen people change out of the fitness industry and go into completely different industries. And, you know, even with your daughter and your son going into different stages of what they want to do, um, what are things that you look for or coach people about in regards to making those transitions? Um, if they're, whether they're happy or no longer happy, like what does that look like for you? How would I say it? So in talking with both of them, um, it's, it's all about, if you don't feel like doing it, don't right in work. I, I just talked about it the other day. It's, it's okay to quit as long as you leave, right? Just don't quit and stay. And so many people, because they don't have the guts to, to say, Hey, I think I'm emotionally and physically done with whatever that is. They actually stay in it, but they've actually checked out a long time ago. Um, uh, so in that, um, they, they cause misery for their coaches. They cause misery for their parents. They cause misery for themselves because especially young people that don't feel like they can stand up and tell their parents the truth, they are telling them through their actions that this is not where I want to be. And so paying attention to your, whether it be employee, paying attention to your athlete through their actions versus their words you really got to be making sure that you're okay with, with all that. And so, you know, that saying it's okay to quit as long as you leave. I've probably used that again with my kids since they were 10. It's like, okay, it's okay to quit. Just, just don't show up to practice. Right. Um, I, I don't want to be the coach that wants you to win more than you want to win. So if you, if you don't, you know, and I'm not going to hear it from you, I'm going to see it from you. Just, just let me know. And I will pressure you in direct proportion to how you want to be handled. And so what, and what's interesting is by not making it so intense a year later, someone might kick in and decide, okay, I do love this and I want to do it. And, and I can tell you, Sean and I've been through many of those where there's just years where he's like, I'm not in it, but it's like, all right, well then don't be in it. I, I'm not, you know, I'll be dead and gone. You're going to have to deal with your outcomes. I don't care. And when you start <laughs> to let people live their lives, even at young ages, because they're, they're old enough to make many decisions because they're going to make them either way. People think that because they tell an adolescent, this is how it's going to be and this is what you're going to do, that that adolescent is, oh, it's done. I told them that's what we're doing. Well, good. When you're not around, they're going to be this way and you're around, they're going to be that way. And you basically set it up to where they can't talk to you anymore, right? Um, so keeping, again, that safe environment, regardless of the age, and taking into consideration how people feel and why they feel that way allows you to the, uh, let people do what they want to do. And with Megan and dance, I think she burned herself out. She did too much. She, you know, went too often. Um, you know, I remember driving up to Hollywood from Orange County, picking her up at Midper Studio that only is up there. And you had to go up there and she's up there all day at 12 years old. And, you know, and then as the years went on, that girl was done, right? And what's interesting is, you know, it might work for some people. It didn't work for her. But but when we say it didn't work, it did work for her. She enjoyed the year she did it. She decided she didn't want to do it anymore at whatever age, maybe 15 or something like that. And she had a lot of fun years doing it. And so I don't view it as she quit dance. I view it as she was done with dance and moved on to the rest of her life. And that's the joke of so many things. We, oh, you quit doing this. Well, no, I just moved on because you, you're always doing something. Even when you're doing nothing, you're doing something, right? Because your time is passing. And so when people don't feel like doing something anymore, you got to just listen and let them do what they want to do. Because even if you make them do it, 
they will still not be doing it. They will just be going through the motions to satisfy someone that they don't have control over. And so whenever you just pay attention, listen, and let people do what they want to do, they are going to live a better life. And so will you in many cases. That's such great advice. I love that. When you have people that you're actually working with and they're going through the motions of, you know, showing up, how do you pinpoint when they don't want to be there, even if they haven't realized it themselves? Um, Through conversation, right? It's so much of it's how you, you can get through a lot by, by getting into how do you feel? And so not what do you think? Because thinking is, is usually pragmatic and how you feel your body will tell you so many times what's going on, right? Um, there's psychosomatic allergies people get when they're stressed out, right? Or they have this problem or that. And so our bodies are amazing machines. And, and so a lot of times when I'm talking to an employee, I'm paying attention to body language, voice inflection, uh, you know, how they, how they project themselves. Very rarely do I pay attention to their words. I pay attention to how those words are delivered. And by doing that, I can tell whether someone feels good or feels bad. And when they don't feel good and their, their goal in life is to feel good, I discuss that with them. And it's like, hey, how do you feel? And they'll usually say, I feel this way. Um, uh, and then in, in, in doing that, we will then go from that to um, why do you think you feel that way? What's going on when you feel that way? What are you thinking about in that moment? You start to break down helping them understand or getting them to work through their own process of what is causing me to feel good and what is causing me not to feel good. And when I don't feel good, where is my brain at that time so that I can then pinpoint their area of stress that they may not be able to explain at that time. And then once we do, we then decide and figure out what's best for them and then they make their decisions from there. And, but if they, so many times they're afraid to make certain decisions and then I hate it when I have to make the decision based on their outcomes. Right. Um, but, and that rarely happens, but we're able to work people through processes at that point. And again, I, I employed that same, uh, um, thought process with young kids and I do it with adolescents and I do it with, you know, 40 year old adults at work. It's helping them understand why they feel the way they feel. And in many cases, when you're, when you're asked to wrestle harder and you simply lack the tools to be better, that's when so many people don't like what they're doing. So many people get into jobs because they like the idea of what that job is at its optimal level, but they lack the tools to be proficient and at that level where once they have those tools and once they have those proficiencies, they can usually enjoy their jobs more. So the trick is make them better every day versus push them harder every day. And you'll have less turnover. You'll have happier employees and they will actually have more successful lives. And, it, and again, it goes to every facet of life for me. So when people come to you and they're like, I'm no longer happy with what they're doing or who they're working for, like you just go through the process of figuring out how they feel and basically break it down for them. That's it. And so, so much of it, you got to understand what you're dealing with and why. And Simon Sinek talks about the why, and, and he's really great at that presentation. And so for me, it's like, Hey, I want to quit. Okay, cool. I'm good with that because I'm happy that, that they're making a decision in their life. But then the question is why? And either they grew and outgrew what they were doing or something, or they didn't feel good at it or something like you said, some new boss changed or something changed in the business or, or maybe they originally thought the business was something and it turns out it is not. And then it is not what they wanted it to be. But either way, I'm happy when people make a decision and, and simply decide how they want to live their life. Now, where I feel sad is when they want to be good and they want to be successful, but they're leaving because they don't feel fulfilled or they don't feel successful. That's when this process has to go in and start to work on it. And it it just takes that one-on-one or group environment where somebody's got to make people better. And we all feel good when we're succeeding. We feel bad when we're not. Um, I've had very few people choose to quit anything when they're succeeding and they have work-life balance. Um, Usually when 
someone leaves, they're either not succeeding or it's impacting their life so much that it's not worth it. And so the job is always really just to figure out how to balance all that out if that is the desired outcome. And so I just, uh, but the process is the same, you know, what and why, why and why. And when you start to understand people's why on whether, and even if you do it early and, and decide the why on success and you simply make your commitment to help people, right? And, and so many people talk about servant leadership, but it's like, okay, show me, right? Show me your servant leadership. Um, do you really think you work for the people that work for you, right? That's servant leadership. And, and one of the best analogies I've had on it was if your employees were given $100 a day to pay you as their leader for the value you brought to their day, could you go around at five o'clock every night and collect a paycheck, right? Or would they be like, I'm not giving you this. You didn't do anything for me, right? (laughs) And, or worse yet, I'm not giving you this. You made me miserable today. You made my life miserable today. And if you actually went around and collected your paycheck from your employees instead of a salary, would they pay you? And if you actually lived your days that way and said, I need to go add value to these people every single day, or I don't deserve my paycheck, right? I think the world would be a better place and work would be a better place. And so when you talk about the why and helping these people through their process, it is me collecting my paycheck from my employees every single day. And if I don't add value to them, I don't deserve to get paid. And I I live every single day feeling that way. You're the man. Like just that last piece. I'm like, I could just like reach over and like give you a big fat hug. That is so freaking awesome. (laughs) But this is why you're, you're one of the best in my life in terms of mentors. Like there's nobody that I would rather call, pick up the phone and talk to when I'm having a shit day or I need to reframe something or I need to take a different step back and have an understanding of what's going on. That's what just makes you amazing. Well, you've had some good people on your shows. I've listened to your other ones. And I, I, I'll tell you this, I call some of those people. <laughs> so <laughs> keep that in mind. Thanks. So we're getting to about an hour. Um, and one of the things that I like to ask my guests before they jump off is if there's something that you would want people to do on a daily basis or just something that people could do to really make an impact in this world, what would that be? What would that look like? Oh my God, stop using plastic bottles. Um, so it's, uh, that is one, but I think if you talk about making it better, it's, it's that, you know, Gandhi, I think is the first one that said it is be the change in the world. You wish it to become right. And when you think about that one, um, but that's also a process. I just think you've got to take care of yourself and you've got to be a better you in order for you to be a better you for other people. And if you're not happy with you, you will then hurt other people, cut and dry. And I think if people are not happy in in just themselves, like if they don't wake up going, I'm happy to be alive today, and regardless of income and socioeconomics and all the things that we think make things matter, but what matters is how did you feel when you woke up and how'd you feel when you went to bed? And did you make the world a better place today? And if you just try to do one thing to make the world a better place today, and everybody does that, it'll be a better place. So again, it might have to be an active task though. Like you may have to, and I do it, but you may have to say, I am going to do something to make someone's day better. And then you literally go out throughout your day and you're seeking out people to make their day better. And if you can find one and do something great and they walk away going, my gosh, like that made my day better. And that happens enough in everybody's life. They will eventually go to do the same thing to others because they just feel like they owe the the karma gods this. Right. And I just think (laughs) that if we quit trying to get ahead of people, right. Um, uh, one of my other favorite sayings is you'll never get ahead of people if you're always trying to get even with people. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you just quit trying to get even with people that have hurt you or people that you feel you should be ahead of, and you quit trying to get ahead and you just try to be a better you, this world's going to be a better place. Oh, I love it. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us some of your bits of wisdom throughout the years and showing us what parenting looks like on your scale and just giving us so much feedback. I appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed myself and uh, I appreciate you thinking of me through your process. Um, It's flattering and it's also exciting watching you go through your growth. Um, And I think the more you do this and this time goes on, you will definitely make the world a better place. Thanks. Hopefully you see why Steve is one of my favorite people and why I'm so excited to share this episode. His perspective with life, parenting, mind, body, thought, and consciousness is spot on. One of the reasons why Steve is such a big deal is because he's a master manipulator of taking away the intensity of emotions, staying grounded, maintaining a level head, while being pragmatic in his approach. He is true servant leadership. If you found this episode to be helpful, please help this new girl out. Subscribe to Trauma to Triumph in iTunes and leave me a review. If you want to connect even further, come to my site, which is kimbao.co, K-I-M-B-A-O dot C-O, co, not com, and drop me a question or let me know what resonated. There is always room to improve and would love to hear the feedback you have for me and to be able to connect. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you, your insight, your willingness to hear another perspective to add to your arsenal of amazing tools you already have. Enjoy right now, and we'll see you at the next episode. Much love.